Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 220. Today, we are going to be talking about one of the most impactful, memorable, and tragic events in American history, and that is the Challenger Space Shuttle disaster. Yeah, it was really an event that really put NASA in in a very, very bad place as well. Mm-hmm. Because at the time, space travel, space exploration was like mm-hmm. new, fresh. Well, it wasn't brand new, but it was yeah. It was still like this very, very exciting thing at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the time, the program had been around for a while now. Mm-hmm. And so there had been a number of successful flights on the mm-hmm. space shuttles. And so people were starting to think, you know, this was, you know, this sort of the next frontier. It's like commercial air, you know, aviation at this point, it's safe. And then this event happened and it just completely Mm -hmm. shattered all of that. Yeah. It seemed like a lot of people lost kind of their faith in NASA. Right. Oh, yeah. After this. This, Yeah. This this event has got a lot, a lot to it. And Mm -hmm. much more than I ever realized. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since it seems like NASA may have known that this could have potentially happened. Oh, no. I think that's safe to say. They fucking knew that this would likely could happen. Well, I guess maybe you can make your own decision on that, but I feel like it's pretty obvious that they had clear knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Because tragically, as a result of this mission, which was the STS-51L, seven NASA astronauts were lost. And we're going to be taking a look at sort of the event from the very beginning all the way through and kind of giving mm-hmm. you sort of a understanding of what what NASA and the space program looked at at this time and kind of you know, what they were trying to do and what led up to this tragic day. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be a very, very interesting episode. We have a lot to cover, so we're going to keep yeah. our intro brief today. Mm-hmm. Um, we really don't have too much to report on other than we're running a giveaway yes. for Higher Love Wellness, yes. our CBD brand. Yep, October 10th through the 14th. So by the time you're watching this, the giveaway has already started, but you can still enter um, if it's before the 14th. There will be three winners and the winners get a 500 milligram of our cool mint oil, our natural hemp oil, and our blueberry oil. And there's instructions on our Instagram account, which is at Higher Love Wellness Co. And that was posted on 1010. So see that post for details. To enter, you must be living in the United States and you must be 18 years or older. So we all know what a giant event it was. On July 20th, 1969, when NASA astronaut Neil Armstrong became the first person to walk on the moon. And from there, the American public was totally hooked on space travel. Twelve more men would walk on the moon over the course of seven missions. But around this time, the U.S. was looking to expand their space program and conduct more research. NASA wanted to go into space more frequently, and the idea of a permanent space station was developed. But obviously, that's going to take a lot of work and a lot of trips to space to build the station. The issue was it was very expensive to make spacecrafts that could only be used once, only on one mission. So NASA was looking for ways to make space exploration less costly. And that's how the space shuttle program was born. Space shuttles were designed to be the future of space travel. These shuttles could be used on multiple missions, so they were more cost-effective and time-effective. The shuttle Enterprise was created as a test flight-only vehicle and first flew in 1977. On April 12, 1981, the first space shuttle mission was launched. 
With a two-person crew, the shuttle Columbia spent two days and six hours in space and orbited the Earth 36 times. And with that, the era of the space shuttle began. The official name of this program was the Space Transportation System. So each mission was numbered with the prefix STS, and the first mission was named STS-1. There were a total of five orbiters in the space shuttle program that made it to space. Columbia, Challenger, Discovery, Atlantis, and Endeavor. And as the years went on, NASA's trips to space got more and more frequent. It was truly an amazing feat to be able to go up to space as much as we did during that time. But obviously, the more we do something, the less interest the public is going to have. As the trips to space became more and more frequent, people started to just care less. So NASA needed to find ways to keep the American people hooked on spaceflight. And that meant adapting to these changing times. So NASA had some ideas. In 1978, they selected 35 men and women to be part of NASA's astronaut group eight. They were a very diverse and talented crew that was set to make history. And they were publicly nicknamed the 35 new guys, TFNG, since the newcomers outnumbered the returning astronauts. And privately, there was sort of an inside joke. TFNG referred to the military slang, the fucking new guys. Before NASA's class of 1978, astronauts were all white men. But this new astronaut group ushered in a new era of diversity and inclusion in space exploration. NASA was still trying different methods to drum up public interest in space, and they definitely wanted to catch the attention of America's youth. So in 1984, President Ronald Reagan launched the NASA Teacher in Space Project to get kids interested in space exploration. And as part of the project, NASA would select and train an educator and bring them on board a space shuttle mission. But the Teacher in Space program made some astronauts at NASA concerned. They thought that space travel was still too new and too risky to bring civilians on board. But still around this time, NASA's message to the public was that civilian space travel is coming soon. They said that space shuttles would be flying so routinely that more and more citizens would be able to see space for themselves, which is super cool. Plus, NASA told Congress the shuttle program would be paying for itself. Civilians would pay to go into space or companies would pay to have their shuttles launched. The Department of Defense would pay for their own space projects and the enormous costs would be paid for. So there was a lot on the line. NASA definitely wanted to keep the good PR going and the money flowing in, so they announced that the first teacher in space would join the crew of STS-51L. It'd be the 25th space shuttle mission, and it would take place on the space shuttle Challenger. The main purpose of this mission was to deploy some satellites and observe Halley's Comet. Four members of the crew were chosen from the class of 78. The pilot was selected in 1980 and the two payload specialists were selected later on. And to say that they were all incredibly brilliant people would absolutely be an understatement. Francis Richard Dick Scobie was selected to be the mission's commander. He had wanted to be a pilot ever since he was a little kid. He and his wife June married while they were teenagers and they had two children together. Dick was a devoted husband and father. Dick actually enlisted in the U.S. Air Force after he got out of high school and while he was off duty, he studied at the University of Arizona and earned a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering. After graduation, he earned his pilot's wings and served as a combat aviator in Vietnam. Dick worked as an Air Force test pilot after the war, but when he saw an ad in the paper that said NASA was looking for astronauts, he decided to apply. After a round of interviews, he got the job and the family happily moved to Houston. Michael J. Smith was the mission's pilot, and this would have actually been his first space flight, which is 
just so sad to think about. Mike was a former decorated Navy pilot who took the job with NASA because he thought it would give him more time with his family, his wife Jane, and their three children. Mike was an athletic guy who liked boxing, tennis, and the game squash, and he also really enjoyed woodworking. He learned to fly when he was a teenager, and from there he went on to attend the U.S. Naval Academy and earned a bachelor's in naval science and a master's in aeronautical engineering. He went to test pilot school specifically to become an astronaut. So when he got the call from NASA that he had been selected to join their astronaut class of 1980, of course, he happily accepted. So the mission had three mission specialists and two payload specialists. Mission specialists had more general astronaut roles on missions, and payload specialists are specifically trained to handle parts of the shuttle's cargo or perform specialized tasks in space. Ellison Onizuka was the first mission specialist. Ellison graduated with a bachelor's and master's degree in aerospace engineering from the University of Colorado Boulder. And from there, he went on to become an Air Force pilot. And later on, he was selected as well to join NASA's astronaut class of 1978. He actually flew his first space mission aboard the Discovery in January of 1985. And he was the first Asian American and first person of Japanese descent to go to space. He always left mission control with plenty of Kona coffee and macadamia nuts from his home state of Hawaii, and he was very proud of his Hawaiian heritage. His fellow astronauts remembered him as a really fun-loving guy with a great sense of humor. Then there's Judith Resnick, or Judy, who was an electrical engineer and the second mission specialist, and she was a trailblazer for women in the space program. She did not want to be defined by her gender, and she was a total badass. Here's a clip of her from an interview. They tell me you have to have very good depth perception to do something like that. Was it a tricky piece of machinery to learn to handle? Uh, it's interesting to use because you can operate it in a lot of modes, but it's primarily uh, looking at learning to look at the cameras and out the windows and, and, and get your views sorted out so you know what you're doing. You don't bump into anything. Do women have a better touch? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. Some women do like to do anyhow. <laughs> We'll try mean, hard. But is it true? I mean, do they, do they have a kind of finer, lighter touch on something like that to not do overpower? <laughs> not necessarily. I think that uh, it's very much like a piloting skill. You use hand controllers much like the hand controllers uh, that the that uh, John and Bob are using uh, to fly the orbiter. We use the same type of hand controllers to fly the RMS. So you just have to learn how to be gentle on the controls. when you. That's so annoying. I know. Sorry, that clip is really not good quality, but... We wanted to include it because it is interesting just how this guy is speaking to her. It's so obvious that... It's a sign of the times. I know. So many things he could ask her. So many interesting interesting things you could ask ask an astronaut that's standing right in front of you. But of course, just going off in his head, she's a woman. She's a Mm -hmm. woman. She's a woman, though. She's a woman. (laughs) What is she going to be able to do that a man can't do? Exactly. She's got lighter hands, so she'll be able to be lighter on the controls. She's like, no, it's just a skill that anybody can do. Super annoyed by it, but she's trying to be polite and professional. But anyway, when she heard that NASA was looking to train astronauts with engineering backgrounds, she applied. And she was the second American woman in space after Sally Ride. The Challenger mission would be her second space flight. Judy was described as a very energetic person. She was really close with the other astronauts, and she was pretty much friends with everyone. Multiple astronauts actually called Judy their best friend. And when they went out together, she always was sort of the star of the show. She was flirtatious, magnetic, and funny. But most of all, she was an incredibly bright woman. 
Ronald McNair, or Ron, was the third mission specialist, and he previously flew on the Challenger in 1984 and played his saxophone in space. He was the second African-American and the first Baha'i in space. So Ron had always been a very bright kid who had very big dreams, but growing up during the segregation era, he was denied a lot of those opportunities because of the color of his skin. And once when he was nine years old, he went to a segregated public library to check out some books. Back then, only white children were allowed to check out books there. Ron still refused to leave until he could check out his books. And the police were actually called into the library over that. And from there, Ron was actually allowed to check out books. So STS-51L would be Ron's second trip to space. On this space flight, he'd be performing a specially recorded music and space composition written especially for the flight. It would have been the first piece of music recorded in space. The next astronaut chosen was Gregory or Greg Jarvis, who was an engineer and the first payload specialist. He was originally bumped from two previous space shuttle flights by congressmen who did the budget for NASA. He never imagined that he'd be an astronaut one day, and he was so excited to get the chance to go to space. In his free time, Greg liked the outdoor sports like whitewater rafting, cross-country skiing, and backpacking. He was also a classical guitarist. He was an engineer on satellite programs for Hughes Aircraft Company, so he'd be handling that payload during the mission. There'd be one more crew member joining them on that mission as a payload specialist, and that crew member wouldn't be an astronaut. They would in fact be a school teacher, selected as part of the Teacher in Space project. Over 11,000 teachers actually applied to become the first civilian in space. One of those applicants was a high school teacher from Massachusetts named Sharon Krista McAuliffe. Krista was a caring person who wanted to accomplish great things in her life. The Apollo mission was very inspiring to her and she dreamed of seeing space herself one day. So that's why she was beyond excited when she found out about the Teacher in Space program. I think it is so badass that these you know, average people were willing to take such a risk, especially back then. 11,000 people. Yeah. And it's interesting because I just, I just was curious and I Googled how many people like apply to become astronauts today and, and in like 2016. So this was a little while ago. NASA reported 18,500 people applied, which these are, wow. these are not just like, like they're civilians. Yeah. They're not already astronauts, mm-hmm. but yeah, a good amount of people apply. Yeah, but I mean, for the time, 11,000 teachers, that is, that's a huge amount of people. Very brave. Well, imagine like being that teacher that got to go to space and come back and, yeah. you know, be able to tell all your students about the experience and mm. just what a cool opportunity that was. Yeah. On her application, she actually wrote, I watched the space age being born and I would like to participate. The selection process was narrowed down to 10 candidates and Crystal was one of them. They all went through a pretty intense screening and training process by NASA. And during that training, the 10 candidates formed a tight-knit bond. One teacher would be selected to go into space and another would serve as a backup crew member. The winner, the teacher who will be going into space, Krista McAuliffe. Where is is that you? (laughs) Krista teaches in Concord High School in Concord, New Hampshire. She teaches high school uh, social studies. She's been teaching for 12 years. She plans to keep a journal of her experiences in space. Uh, She said that, and here's the quote, just as the pioneer travelers of the Conestoga wagon days kept personal journeys, I, as a space traveler, would do the same. Well, I'm 
personally looking forward to uh, reading that journal someday. And by the way, Krista, while you're in the program, uh, Concord High obviously will need uh, substitute teachers to uh, fill in, and it's only right that we provide a, uh, one of these substitutes. So the first class, you miss. Uh, your substitute will be my dear friend and the president's uh, Bill Bennett, the it's Secretary cool of Education. So yeah. congratulations to all of you. Uh, good luck, Krista. God bless all of you. Thank you very much for coming. And you too get one of these. Uh, It's, it's not often that a teacher is at a loss for words. I know my students wouldn't think so. I've made nine wonderful friends over the last two weeks. And when that shuttle goes, they might be one body. <laughs> but there's going to be ten souls that I'm taking with me. Thank you. That's great. Gosh, that gives me chills. She seems like such a sweet person. I know. I love her accent. Uh, she's so hard. I think uh, she did look nervous, so you could just tell, like, yeah. or maybe she was just emotional about about being chosen. But I think she was. I think she almost felt kind of bad because she had, you know, like she said, gotten close with all these other people and wanted them all to succeed. She seems like one of those types of people. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, well, she was uh, super excited. Yeah, to be selected to go go to space. She was proud to represent her school and teachers everywhere. Yeah, this was such a huge, huge opportunity. Such a big deal for all teachers all over the country. Can you imagine how exciting yeah. this was? Her selected backup was Barbara Morgan, who was an elementary school teacher. Uh, she actually completed all the training alongside the astronauts in case Krista couldn't go on the mission. And throughout the whole process, Barbara became close with the other crew members, especially her fellow teacher, Krista. Krista became the most well-recognized member of the Challenger crew as she would make history as the first civilian in space. And as part of the Teacher in Space project, on day four of the mission, she would teach lessons from space. That's so cool. Also, side note, I was reading on Reddit and mm -hmm. I came across that Big Bird yeah. was maybe going to be going to space, which was, yeah. I think, genius in order to like bring in the interests of kids and stuff. Right. You know oh, what I mean? it would have been so good. Um, Carol Spinney, I believe is his name, that he actually was the guy that played Big Bird. And he said that I once got a letter from NASA asking if I would be willing to join a mission to orbit the Earth as Big Bird to encourage kids to get interested in space. Mm -hmm. And he said that he was the first civilian asked to go into the space shuttle. It's not really clear why he didn't end up going, but people speculate maybe it's because Big Bird is like eight feet tall and probably would take up a lot of room. That's actually <laughs> been confirmed. I was watching a documentary on this and they actually said that it was because the suit was too big to fit mm. in the shuttle. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That would have been cool though. Yeah, well, you probably wouldn't need to be wearing it like the whole time, right? Well, like, I would assume he's like yeah. in otherwise the jump he's just seat, a guy like, strapped in as Big Bird with his yeah. head on. But I feel like if he wasn't, then who cares? Because no one knows. Yeah. You know, not to sound disrespectful, yeah. but no one knows him without the costume. Like, I'm just a little confused because why didn't they just find a smaller Big Bird. Muppet or puppet? Wait, <laughs> what is Sesame Street? Muppet. What would you call them? Puppets? Uh, I don't know. I don't think they're puppets. They're just like little yeah, characters. Well, there is That's puppets. puppets in, I'm thinking. Oh. Yeah, there's puppets in Sesame Street. Like, send Elmo. He's going to fit. Elmo would have been good. <laughs> well, it's just obvious that like this mission was specifically to yeah. get the, public the general interest. public and especially yeah. the youth mm -hmm. amped up about space travel. Like, that was mm -hmm. NASA's number one mission, which is absolutely chilling and crazy to think about considering what happens mm -hmm. that this, you know, 
children yeah. are tuning in, youth are tuned into this because yeah. like, their teachers up there, like mm-hmm. this is just such a huge deal. Yep. So how many more younger kids would have probably right. been watching if there was a character? I mean, I know that is scary. To yeah, think about. It, it is Gosh. really crazy. But we're going to get into the preparation for the mission here, but we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The training for astronauts is obviously very rigorous. It lasted about a year for the mission specialist and Krista trained for around five months. And it included a ride, of course, on the specialized reduced gravity plane, which is nicknamed the Vomit Comet. During a flight on the Vomit Comet, it performs a maneuver that temporarily lets the crew float weightlessly. This is on my bucket list, by the way. I know. You've told me that. Isn't it ex- insanely expensive? So, Didn't we look it up one time? Yeah. So, oh, they did it on like The Bachelor or something this year, right? Oh, yeah. They, They've done that stupid. a bunch of times. So there is a company now called uh, Zero G. Mm. And this experience is not just for NASA astronauts anymore. It's for anybody. And it only costs your soul. <laughs> no, it's like 80 to 100 bucks for this flight. 8200 80, or 8200 $8,200. Oh. Just for I was like $8,200. No, no, no. This is to actually go up in a plane uh in a Boeing 727 specially uh fitted to do the sort these sort of maneuvers. So it's actually maneuvers that they're doing in order to create this weightless right. effect. Um but they have to fly um up to 32,000 feet and then the plane gently pulls out these maneuvers maneuvers <laughs> maneuvers. <laughs> So they push over the top of the parabolic arc and the zero gravity phase begins. For the next 20, 30 seconds, everything in the plane is weightless. So it's only for 20, yeah. 30 seconds where this, this happens quick thing. because yeah. of the wh- how they're doing it. And it costs 8200 bucks. 8200 bucks. But Damn. you could hold out for the other uh, space tourism that's coming, the yeah. balloon that is going to take you up out of the atmosphere and you're actually going to be able to be in space looking down at the earth. Are you weightless like that? I believe so. actually no in this you're not because right. they have it pressurized but so it's like a completely different thing yeah so 8200 bucks for 20 seconds they do it several times so like you're mm-hmm. get you're getting maybe like a minute couple or so. minutes or so wow. of weightlessness you're just going to it? a pool <laughs> <laughs> there you go that's right <laughs> 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 just just drown in a pool. No, not the drown. Same thing. Just swim in a pool. Well, you yeah, have why to... did you why did drowning get <laughs> because you you're <laughs> swimming in a pool is you're actively doing something. No, Floating in, in space, you can just be like yeah, chilling. You can there. do that in a pool. Get a snorkel. Maybe you can get a scuba. I sink when I do that. If I <laughs> hold my arms, I just start sinking to the bottom of the pool. I always make fun of Josh when we're at the in the ocean because he starts like he has to like try so hard to stay I above sink. the water, and I'm what? able to just I completely sink. stop moving and just yeah. like float. And he's I'm, he's always like trying so hard, and he can't just chill. And my body's get, like, so dense that. <laughs> I sink. Seriously, this Stop. is something my grandfather told me since I was a young boy. Oh he says, We are rocks. We are in this all family. anchors. Okay. <laughs> Make sure you learn how to swim, Sonny, because you're going to sink to the bottom of the pool. Sonny. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so what's interesting is the whole crew also had to quarantine for two weeks before the launch so that they didn't get sick, which now we are all a little bit more familiar. Which meant that they couldn't be with their families yeah. either, which sucks. You did get to take weeks. your spouse, though. Yeah. Yeah, but what about your kids? You know, kids are more important. Right. I mean, yeah, that's really hard. Can't be without your kids. I see why. There's actually a video taken during their quarantine period where 
Krista laughs and tells a reporter that she has to stay six feet away from other people. And while the crew was training, construction was underway on the shuttle's solid rocket boosters. When a shuttle launches, it needs an enormous amount of thrust to get into space. That's what she said. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I had to. Too much office, sorry. Obviously, to get the heavy space shuttle into orbit, it is attached to an external fuel tank that powers two solid rocket boosters. Solid rocket boosters, or SRBs, are needed to get the shuttle off the ground with enough force to get it into space. Around two minutes after takeoff, the solid rocket boosters separate from the shuttle, and from there, they parachute into the water for recovery. Then, the boosters were refurbished to be used again. NASA solid rocket boosters were built by an outside contractor based in Promontory, Utah, called Morton Thiokol. An important part of these solid rocket boosters are components known as the O-rings. O-rings are rubber tubes about a quarter inch thick and 12 feet in diameter that seal together the segments of the boosters. Each O-ring is placed in a joint around the circumference of the segment and sealed against another joint. In each joint, there were two kinds of O-rings installed as a safety measure. That way, if one ring failed, the other one would hopefully keep the seal. It was really important that the O-rings kept a seal. If they didn't and the flames leaked, gas would blow past the O-rings and cause an explosion. Again, these solid rocket boosters were supposed to be reusable, but contractors at Morton Thiokol started to notice that parts of the O-rings had been eroded after they were used in previous shuttle missions. Engineers there started to raise some concerns about the O-ring erosion. The most concerning case of O-ring erosion came from the Discovery STS-51C, a mission that launched on January 24, 1985. Ellison Onizuka was actually on that mission, and it was his first time in space. When the solid rocket boosters were recovered from the Discovery's launch, engineers examined the O-rings, and there was a significant worrying amount of charring on the O-rings. But the issue was, is that the engineers couldn't figure out what the actual problem was. The only big difference between the Discovery launch and the other space shuttle launches was the outside temperature. That day, it was a chilly 54 degrees Fahrenheit, which was the coldest temperature they'd ever launched in. And sadly, this would be an eerie predictor of the tragedy that would occur just one year later. Engineers at Morton Thiokol tried to make a connection between the outside temperature and the O-ring erosion. The O-rings were supposed to be flexible, but in lower temperatures, they became more rigid and less pliable. The problem was they'd also been observing some O-ring erosion in launches at warmer temperatures. Even the secondary O-ring started to show some erosion after the primary O-ring was destroyed, which was a really, really bad sign. So they really needed to figure out how to fix this problem. But the thing was, is that everyone was on a tight schedule. NASA had promised Congress that there would be 16 space flights in 1986. There had been nine the previous year. And if the flights were delayed to fix the O-ring problem, then the budget would go up. So NASA made the decision to keep the launches going, even after they acknowledged a serious problem and flaw with the O-rings. Every launch had Morton Thiokol engineers biting their fingernails, praying that everything would go smoothly. Meanwhile, the public and the astronauts kept getting reassured that everything would be safe. Here's an engineer at Morton Thiokol talking about some of the O-ring issues. Presidential Commission would later find that the joint was flawed and there were warnings about it nine years ago. In this 1977 memo, NASA engineer William Ray states, the joint is unacceptable and recommends redesign. And in this 1979 memo, 
race sites concerns that the o-ring was being asked to perform beyond its intended design but despite these and other warnings the problem was never corrected and by the end of july 1985 out of 19 flights nine had experienced some degree of erosion on the seals that's not good no it's really upsetting to see that so obviously when it came to the challenger's launch the concern was no different than all the previous launches but obviously they're trying to stay on schedule and this challenger launch was going to be a historical one so they kept pushing ahead the Challenger would be launching out of the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida, and it was also supposed to return to Cape Canaveral after it returned to Earth. And the STS-51L launch was plagued with six delays. The original launch date was actually January 22, 1986, and that date had to be moved to the 23rd and then again to the 24th since the space shuttle mission STS-61C was also delayed. The STS-61C was the mission just before the Challenger mission, and it was supposed to take off on December 18th, 1985, but it was delayed multiple times. The 24th mission finally launched on January 12th, 1986, and returned on January 18th. So it didn't leave a whole lot of time in between space flights. So the 24th rolled around, and the crew was very eager to actually launch the Challenger. But there was bad weather at one of the transoceanic abort landing sites in Senegal, which the mission needed in case there was a critical failure during the launch. So that launch had to be scrubbed. The launch was moved to the next morning, but the preparations couldn't be made in time. So the launch was scrubbed again. So a new flight date was set for Monday, January 27th, but that was called off as well. And this time the crew had waited inside for six hours before they just canceled it. There was a problem with the bolts on the shuttle's hatch, so it wasn't closing and sealing properly. Lockheed Martin crews were trying to fix the problem, but they were sort of blundering the operation. They had to bring in a suitcase of tools to fix the hatch, and the tools all had to be battery operated since there was fuel in the tank. But when the tools got there, all the batteries were dead. So the crew had to literally saw the thick handle off with a hacksaw. And this ate up all the short launch window the mission had for takeoff. The winds kept building by the minute. But the repairs weren't completed in time, so the weather got too bad for the Challenger to launch. So after all that time, the crew had to get out of the shuttle and wait for the next day. The crew was starting to get very frustrated with all the scrubbed launch attempts. It took time and effort to prepare for the launch, but the new date was set for the next morning, January 28th, 1986, at 9.37 a.m. You would think for such an expensive, like, multi-billion dollar I know. space shuttle that there'd be better crews, better repair technicians, tools, like... And no rush. Yeah. I don't understand why there's so much rush. Well, I think most of it is because when one gets delayed, it's like a domino it's effect. It's a chain yeah. reaction. So if yeah. one gets delayed, the next gets delayed, which delays the next one and the next one and the next but it's one. Like, which I get to some extent, yeah. but it's like... In any other business, but... Yeah. But when you're putting is, humans into orbit... Yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> I mean, I completely agree. I think that was time. like their reasoning. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. yeah. No, that is for sure the reason. Yeah, I mean, this it's a prime example. It's like, would you want technicians rushing on fixing the roller coaster at the theme park or do you want them to take their time <laughs> right. you know like it's it's the same type of thing obviously much smaller scale but it's like mm -hmm. when people's lives are in jeopardy profit should never and, and and reputation and ego and whatever it is should never yeah it should never be but over it does that. 
right. almost always. Yeah, could you imagine you're literally waiting for takeoff and they're like, hold on, the bolts are a little wacky. Let yeah. me go ahead and try yeah. and fix them. Let me send up some We called the handyman from the local... <laughs> From the local task rabbit to come and fix the airplane. Hold on, folks. No, it's it's really that ridiculous. I mean, yeah, we'll get more into it. But not only that, though, it was so cold that day, like record low temperatures. Honestly, for yeah, it's honestly like it should have been like seen as like an omen, like mm-hmm. just from like, like do not launch this thing. Literally icicles. Yeah. forming on the launch pad in Florida because it dropped so, down to 30 degrees overnight in Florida. Yeah, that's just totally crazy. And people that worked there thought, you know, as soon as they came into work and saw that there were icicles, that it was just definitely not going to happen. They must be canceling it. It's not going to happen today. So a lot of people were shocked to see that they pretty much like Florida forward. Florida would have shut down for the day with oh, yeah. icicles, you know, like. Floridians would be freaking out if there was ice everywhere. So why mm-hmm. why something so important was still pushed on despite these clear yeah. warnings? I mean, NASA even reached out to Morton Thiokol minutes after the new launch time was set, and they asked him if there was concerns about the dropping temperatures. And from there, the company contacted Bob Ebeling to prepare an engineering evaluation. So Bob was a rocket booster engineer at Morton Thiokol. And he was extremely concerned about the launch. He felt that the O-rings would not be able to withstand the cold temperatures. And because of that, he desperately wanted to have the launch delayed. He actually talked with his superior, Roger Beaujolais, who had already been raising concerns about the O-rings since July of 1985. Roger had warned that winter launches could result in a catastrophe of the highest order. So we're talking about an engineer who would actually know what they're talking about Mm -hmm. when it comes to this equipment. At 2 p.m. on the 27th, a NASA management team held a meeting discussing the launch temperatures. Meanwhile, over at Morton Thiokol, Bob informed Roger and the other engineers about the cold temperatures. After they talked, Bob called up NASA and told them that Morton Thiokol engineers were concerned about how the cold weather would affect the rocket booster seals. And they decided to set up a teleconference meeting with NASA. And during this meeting, Morton Thiokol recommended that the launch be postponed until the afternoon because they were concerned about the O-rings if they were going to hold up. And they strongly recommended that NASA postpone the launch. Morton Thiokol actually brought up STS-51C and how that was the worst case of O-ring erosion that they had ever seen. And that the launch took place with an outside temperature of 54 degrees, which was the lowest that they had ever launched at. The officials at NASA decided to call a second meeting later that night to discuss the issue with more managers and engineers present. And at that meeting, Morton Thiokol presented some charts that summarized their concerns about the O-rings. And Roger strongly recommended, again, that the launch be postponed. You would think at that point it would just be a no question. Right. If they're recommending we don't launch, we don't launch, period. Using the amusement park analogy, like mm-hmm. if the engineer for the amusement park says this yeah. ride is unsafe to ride, they close it because right. the liability that's there if they try to run it anyway. Even if mm-hmm. that means that they lose sales for the park that day or it's mm-hmm. shut down for an extended period of time. It's not worth the catastrophe that could happen that could, you know, be even worse damage to the park if something were to happen. Right. This kind of reminds me of, oh, we did an episode on it, that oil spill. Why am I forgetting the name Deepwater Horizon. Deepwater Horizon. Right. Where Mm -hmm. they're just pushing the limits because, again, completely ignoring profits over everything. Yeah. Based on their testing, Morton Thiokol engineers reported that given the conditions, if the primary O-ring eroded and failed, 
there would be a high probability that the secondary O-ring would not be able to seal the joint properly. Someone on the call mentioned that there had been O-ring erosion on a flight that took off at what was essentially room temperature. Roger responded saying that the erosion on STS-51C, the colder flight, had much more significant erosion. He thought that the colder weather caused more erosion, and for that reason, Morton Thiokol recommended that the shuttle launch at a temperature greater than 53 degrees. A member of the management from the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center said he was appalled by Morton Thiokol's recommendation, but he wouldn't go against it. Lawrence Malloy, the shuttle program manager from NASA, was not pleased with Morton Thiokol's recommendation. He challenged whether or not the data of the O-rings was accurate. He even made the comment, my God, when do you want me to launch? April? Yeah, launch in <sighs> April if it means when it's nobody safe. dies. So fucking irritating. So after those comments, the mood in the room definitely changed. Morton Thiokol asked NASA to go offline for five minutes while their engineers discussed their recommendation. That five minutes turned into 30 minutes, and it was a very emotional meeting to try and delay the launch. Roger and his colleagues strongly objected to the launch, and they thought it would be far too risky to take a chance with the weather. All 10 of Morton Thiokol's engineers agreed, and Bob Lund, Thiokol's vice president of engineering, was pretty hesitant to launch. They were going to vote to delay, but that's when a Thiokol manager told Bob Lund to take off his engineering hat and put on his management hat. After that, the four managers decided to agree with NASA and say that their data was inconclusive. From there, the four voted to approve the launch. Meanwhile, Alan McDonald, who managed Thiokol's SRB project, was arguing with Malloy and another NASA manager and was trying to get them to delay the launch. Not only was he concerned about the O-rings, but he was also concerned about the ice too. There were one and two foot long icicles hanging from the areas around the launch pad. If those icicles blew off, they could potentially damage the shuttle. NASA wanted Thiokol's recommendation to launch, put into writing, and signed by someone at the company. And this might have been a move to place the blame on Thiokol in case anything did go wrong. And it seemed to show that NASA was nervous about the launch too. Reluctantly, one of the four Thiokol managers signed the paper approving the launch and faxed it over to Kennedy Center. Bob Ebling's daughter, Leslie Cerna, also worked at Thiokol. So usually they carpooled to work together. And she remembers driving to work with her father on that day and that he was just totally stressed out. He was pounding on the dashboard yelling that there was going to be a catastrophic event and it terrified him that he hadn't been able to convince NASA not to launch the shuttle. Leslie had never seen her father so upset before. So this leads us to January 28, 1986. And the day started with a ceremonial breakfast and a special cake made for the mission. The crew was optimistic about the launch and everyone seemed like they're in good spirits. There was another delay that morning due to issues with the fire detection system, so the launch time was pushed back to 11.38 a.m. By now, this was the sixth delay in Challenger's launch, and the last space shuttle mission was plagued with delays. NASA was behind schedule, which was affecting their budget. Each delay would have a domino effect on the rest of the shuttle missions. Since the last Columbia launch was delayed, the Challenger was delayed. And now with each Challenger delay, the rest of the flights after it would also have to be delayed. NASA needed to make their record 15 flights this year, and they wanted to do it within their budget. So there was a lot of pressure to get the shuttle off the ground and into orbit. 
Many school children were watching the launch that day because of the Teacher in Space program. Some elementary school students from Krista McAuliffe School District were invited to the launch, in fact. We got a clip of the kids excited for the launch. Well, I think it's really neat because she's going to be the first private citizen in space. It's going to be very exciting watching it go off. used to seeing um, Mrs. McAuliffe like, um, out raking her yard or something, not <laughs> floating around in space. Expectations also ran high in New Jersey as a gifted group of science students prepared to simulate the shuttle launch. Ever optimistic, the interrupted countdown of America's 25th shuttle expedition would finally be a go. An estimated 17% of Americans or more than 40 million people tune in to watch the launch. Two hours before takeoff, the crew headed for NASA vans that took them to the launch pad. And as the cameras flashed, they smiled and waved goodbye for the last time. Finally, it was time for the astronauts to board the shuttle. At 11.38 a.m. that morning, the space shuttle Challenger took off. The air temperature was 36 degrees Fahrenheit or 2 degrees Celsius. Just as the ship launched, the cockpit voice recorder picked up Judy Resnick cheering. All right. People across the nation watched excitedly as the shuttle blasted off towards space. But sadly, that excitement quickly turned to horror when the unthinkable happened. T-minus 15 seconds. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, Imagine 6. the anticipation. We know. have main uh. engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1. The feeling of the whole and thing. And liftoff. Liftoff of wow. the 25th space shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. this so many times it still just gives me chills that's so crazy everybody's just like taking it flight controllers here looking very carefully at the situation Debris hitting the ocean. Yeah. With them in it. 
reports from the flight dynamics officer indicate that the vehicle uh, apparently exploded and that uh, impact uh, in the water at a uh, point approximately 28.64 uh, degrees north, uh, 80.28 uh, degrees west. We are awaiting uh, verification from uh, uh, as to the location of the recovery forces in the field to, to see what uh, may be possible at this point. Just, so eerie. Yeah, it is. If you're listening to the, the podcast today, definitely take a mm -hmm. look at the show on Spotify or YouTube and, and watch it if you'd like, because it's just so it just puts it, you know, it puts it all together yeah. when you actually watch it versus mm -hmm. listening to it. But people on the ground were super confused about what was going on yeah. and even cheering when the shuttle exploded. Mm-hmm. Thinking that it was the rocket booster. Right, the boosters. Because, I mean, from the ground, I mean, you don't really know what you're looking at. No. It's that high up there. So hard to see. And they really didn't know until the announcement came that the vehicle had exploded. And at that point, excitement turned to confusion and then to shock. Yeah, it was actually announced out loud, you know. Right. At Kennedy. Then obviously, into <sighs> sheer horror and grief, the crew members' families couldn't believe what they were hearing and seeing. There's a another clip of family members and just people who are watching the launch reacting mm -hmm. to it's really powerful to see it is yeah picture you were just seeing was christy mccullough's parents watching in horror. These are the students from her school. Many of them probably had their view blocked just as we did with the television cameras with just a huge fireball and a huge cloud of smoke. They may not realize yet what has happened. You see concern etched on their faces. The breath that they've been holding released. And then the realization sets in that something is wrong. And like kid, kids are hearing this and yeah. watching the area this. Of the launch pad oh yeah, thousands of the the kids saw this at school. 
just totally shocked. Families of the astronauts normally in the grandstands. Thomas Jonesarella pointed out from the Cape earlier when uh, all of us first saw the blast and there was a moment of, of stunned silence and disbelief. Uh, many people perhaps did confuse it with the, um, is it the booster rockets? The solid rocket booster separation, which but it was really, a little later. It was, it was far too early. early and far too big an explosion. And it took a while, I'm sure, for it to sink in in the minds of, of the parents and the school children. There you see Mr. and Mrs. Corrigan still standing saying a silent prayer those are Christian McAuliffe's parents it's Edward and Grace Corrigan Mrs. Corrigan had said in an earlier interview with CNN that she would be thrilled to be the one to be up there herself that she once took flying lessons just because she liked the adventure of it they'd always encouraged their daughter to be adventurous and to go for it in her words Tom, the area that we were just watching, the bleachers where people were watching and photographing the launch, who was allowed in there? That is the VIP section, invited guests for this launch. I myself received an invitation from Michael Smith, who was the pilot on what this flight. Do you even flight, do? To what do you do? Yeah. Start, yeah, to people are like his starting to walk Michael away. Michael Smith has been a guest here on CNN before on our launch coverage and sent me a special invitation to go. That would then include family members of the astronauts, friends? It, it includes family members. I understand there was a delegation of, from China of 100 people, school children from New Hampshire. That would be so confusing, too. Yeah. Like, especially, I mean, now, obviously, they know what happened, but, you know, watching it live. Because, obviously, these people in you know, space is such a complicated thing. Mm -hmm. Most people don't know exactly what's going on. Right. Academy. Served in Vietnam, is married, and has three children. Uh, and we had an interview with him there on CNN. It's like they always know that this could happen. But right. I think nothing right. could prepare you for that yeah. moment. Well, especially and seeing it, it right oh. there in front of you. I think that's like what's most shocking. Uh, like it happened so quickly after launch. Or your child that you're probably so proud of. And then just to watch it go into uh, this big fireball. It's just, it's just unbearable. So if you remember, Barbara Morgan, who is Chris's alternate, actually watched the shuttle launch from the viewing area. Wow. And as the shuttle took off, she excitedly waved and yelled, bye, Krista, bye, crew. And she had no idea that in that moment, she was actually saying her final goodbyes. And in this clip we're about to play, you can see the moment she realized something went horribly wrong.
hearing. Yeah, yeah. So thinking that was just the booster. That's not right. She had to have been thinking that could have yeah. been me. I mean, I think it's only things. Bob Ebling and his daughter Leslie watched the launch together live with the rest of the Morton Thiokol's staff. It's hard to imagine how horrific it must have been to watch the shuttle launch, knowing it was going to explode and there was nothing you could do about it. Bob leaned over to his daughter and told her he was praying that everything would be okay. And Leslie remembered watching the shuttle clear the launch pad. Her dad leaned over and said, it's not over. 20 seconds later, the shuttle exploded. And Bob immediately began sobbing and shaking. The explosion happened fast, and for audio listeners, we're going to break down some of the key moments from the launch and the explosion. At T equals zero, the solid rocket ignition command ascent. At T plus 0.250, the first continuous vertical motion is recorded, meaning the shuttle was lifting off. Only about a half second later, abnormal black smoke is captured leaking out of the faulty joint in the right-hand solid rocket booster. At T plus one, Captain Michael Smith says, here we go. A NASA commentator announces the Challenger has achieved liftoff and cleared the tower two seconds later. At 19 seconds, Mike comments that there must be a lot of wind today, and Dick agrees. At T plus 21, the roll maneuver is completed and the shuttle is on proper trajectory. Seven seconds later, the shuttle is 10,000 feet high, traveling at half the speed of sound. About nine seconds later, the shuttle's computer adjusts the flight path in response to wind shears. Everything appears to be going to plan, but at T plus 58, tracking cameras pick up an abnormal plume of smoke coming from the right-hand rocket booster. A second later, more smoke began to pour out, which was a clear sign that the O-ring had failed and had been burnt through. Half a second later, flames start to shoot from the leaking joint, and the internal pressure of the SRB begins to decrease as the leak and the flames grow bigger. At T plus 64, the shape of the leaking SRB plume changes suddenly, and at this point, a leak has started in the shuttle's liquid hydrogen tank, which fuels the fire from the right SRB, and two seconds later, pressure in the shuttle's external liquid hydrogen tank begins to drop, which means that there's just been a massive leak. Pilot Mike Smith had real-time readings from the solid rocket boosters. It looks like the leak happened too quickly for him to see it, but even if it had, there's nothing any of the crew members could have done to fix the situation. At T plus 73, Mike Smith is recorded saying, uh-oh, and that's the last recording from the crew cabin. That second, a massive fireball envelops the Challenger, and a split second later, a massive explosion destroys the shuttle. It is so eerie. The force of the explosion disintegrates the shuttle, and pieces of it tumble down towards the Atlantic Ocean. After the explosion, a short crackle is heard over the air-to-ground radio. It's the ground transmitter searching for the shuttle's radio signal. Two seconds later, NASA's public affairs officer, Steve Nesbitt, announced the shuttle's speed and altitude readings. He hadn't realized yet that there had been an explosion. But when he looked up, he fell silent, and the rest of the ground controller stared at the screen in shock. Thirteen seconds of silence passed. Here's Capcom's reaction or mission control. 65, Fido. TDL confirms throttle. Thank you. Challenger, go with throttle up. Challenger, go with throttle up.
Flight out trajectory. Go ahead. Flight JC, we've had uh, negative contact, lost downlink. Okay, all operators, watch your data carefully. Flight final until we get stuff back. He's on his cue card for abort modes. Flight JC, negative downlink. Copy. Just out of shock. Flight final. Go ahead. RSO reports vehicle exploded. Copy. Fido, can we get any reports from recovery forces? Stand by. Fido, fly. Go ahead. Did the RSOs have an impact point? Stand by. What do you even say? I know. Yeah. You can tell the energy in there is just so thick. Mm -hmm. I think they're all just kind of like wondering what's, what's going on. Or maybe they knew. Maybe they knew exactly what happened. Oh, and they're they, just feeling yeah, they're probably, horrible that this even happened. Okay, the launch happened. Stay off the telephones. Make sure you maintain all your data. Start pulling it together. Got to bounce back again. Uh, yeah, just sitting there. Just... Final flight. Go ahead, sir. Are the LSOs on the loop? We can get them. Get them up on this loop, please. Yes, sir. It's the LSO. Okay, are there any forces headed out that way? Yes, sir. It just has to be so hard to keep your composure. So four minutes after liftoff, the crew compartment slams into the Atlantic Ocean, killing all seven crew members on board. And from there, the compartment disintegrated and came to rest 100 feet underwater. After this tragedy... President Ronald Reagan created a presidential commission known as the Rogers Commission to investigate this disaster. It was named after William Rogers, who's the head of the commission, and he was an establishment political figure who didn't have aerospace experience, and Reagan told him not to make NASA look bad. Sally Ride and Neil Armstrong were also made members of the commission, and one of the members of the commission was a theoretical physicist named Richard Feynman. He was key to figuring out the cause of this tragedy. Feynman discovered that there was a huge lack of communication between NASA management and their engineers. Either that or management was deliberately pushing aside engineering concerns to keep money flowing in and their image clean. We got a clip of Feynman talking about how this disaster happened. Was this an accident that did not have to happen? Yes, it, yes, it was. It was uh, an accident that had many, many warnings that there was something wrong and that it might sooner or later go off and uh, the warnings were disregarded. Disregarded out of incompetence, out of a faulty system, out of bad judgment, out of, for what reason? I had some difficulty with that. I kind of imagine that something like a child that runs in the, in the road and the parent is very upset and says it's very dangerous. And the child comes back and says, but nothing happened. And he runs out in the road again several times and the parent keeps saying it's dangerous and nothing happens if the child's view that nothing happened is a cl clue that there was nothing going to happen then that's going to be an accident you could hear brakes squealing a couple of times that's leakage and the gas is going through the rings and so forth but again and again i saw in looking through this statements 
This new flight is within our database, which just means nothing happened before. It's about the same as we did before, so it can't be unsafe because it was okay last time. And that is a kind of childish attitude that uh, the mother corresponding to the engineers here right. and the management corresponding to the children. Now, that's the way I look at it, and I don't know what you would say. Sooner or later, the child gets run over. Is it an accident? No, it's not an accident. That's a really good way to put it. You can tell he's so angry. Like he's almost he doing this awkward smile. I think it's this uncomfortable. He doesn't know how else to even say it. But I yeah. think that's a really good way of putting. Yeah, putting yeah. I mean, I think that explains it really well. It's like yeah, they had had launch after launch after launch, and they did have that previous launch that was in colder weather. We've and been it was, good. We've been you know, fine. Well, it was okay there was still damage to the o-rings right. but that was sort of in you know yeah. nasa's mind when they decided okay this launch mm -hmm. but according to his research engineers at nasa reported that the risk of a catastrophic shuttle failure could happen one out of every 100 launches management at nasa previously said the risk was much lower and they estimated a risk of one in 100,000 at launch so this was a big red flag that communication was an issue at NASA. Through his own investigative research and the help of Sally Ride, Feynman was able to figure out the cause of the accident. It had, in fact, been a faulty O-ring that caused the explosion. Feynman did an experiment using a piece of O-ring material used in those solid rocket boosters in order to come to his conclusion. We've got a clip of his experiment, actually. Well, I took the stuff that I got out of your seal and I put it in ice water. And I discovered that when you put some pressure on it for a while and then undo it, it maintains, it doesn't stretch back, it stays the same dimension. In other words, for a few seconds at least, and more seconds than that, there's no resilience in this particular material when it's at a temperature of 32 degrees. I believe that has some significance for our problem. Because if you remember, at the time of the launch, it was basically freezing outside so to go ahead with the launch knowing that the o-rings were going to be affected by the cold temperatures was um, just so stupid it's yeah, hard to believe it, it is so when the gases in the solid rocket boosters are heated up they expand and they look for any opening to escape through and since the o-rings couldn't expand because of the temperature they didn't form that proper seal and the gases escaped through the unsealed joints which just caused the explosion of the right hand solid rocket booster and then the shuttle itself so roger beaujolais testified in front of the committee and told them that he had warned against launching multiple times got some footage of him actually testifying i have here a letter which appears to be one signed by you dated july 31st 1985 and i'll ask dr keel uh, to give it to you uh, and i gather from the files that we received from you, you wrote a series of letters or memos to, I guess memos is a better way to describe it. Those were activity reports. Yes. Uh, expressing your concern about this problem of the seals and the O-rings and so forth, I would ask you, if you don't mind, to read that memorandum dated July 31st, which you wrote to Dr. to R.K. Lund, who is Vice President of Engineering. Yes. Would you mind? <laughs> yes. This letter is written to ensure that management is fully aware of the seriousness of the current O-ring erosion problem in the SRM joints from an engineering standpoint. 
The mistakenly accepted position on the joint problem was to fly without fear of failure and to run a series of design evaluations which would ultimately lead to a solution or at least a significant reduction of the erosion problem. This position is now drastically changed as a result of the SRM 16A nozzle joint erosion, which eroded a secondary O-ring with a primary O-ring never sealing. If the same scenario should occur in a field joint, parentheses, and it could, then close parentheses, then it is a jump ball as to the success or failure of the joint because the secondary O-ring cannot respond to the clevis opening rate and may not be capable of pressurization. If you remember Bob Ebling, he actually told Leslie that the only way he could have convinced NASA to postpone the launch was, quote, if he had brought a gun to work and held them hostage. Wow. That says a lot. Yeah, that really does. At first, it was just assumed that the crew died in the initial explosion, but NASA's later investigations show that this probably mm -hmm. wasn't true, that Even the astronauts worse. may have still been alive after the initial impact and died after making contact with the water. Mm -hmm. That's just crazy to think about. I know. Evidence from the final bits of data recorded on the shuttle showed that the crew probably knew something had gone very, very wrong. Some members of the crew were conscious for at least 10 seconds after the explosion. NASA scientists reported that the initial explosion was survivable and the chance that it caused death or serious injury was low. After the explosion, the crew cabin detached from the shuttle. But again, this explosion happened at 48,000 feet. But the crew cabin kept flying up until it hit 65,000 feet. And from there, it started hurtling back towards the Earth and the water at 207 miles an hour. Ellison, Onizuka, and Judy Resnick had activated their personal egress air packs, which would give them up to six minutes of breathable air in case of an emergency. They even activated Mike Smith's air pack while he tried to restore power to the cabin. However, these air packs didn't provide pressurized air, so the crew likely lost consciousness due to the rapid cabin depressurization within just a few seconds. Still, the fact that they were manually deployed showed that the crew was aware that there had been a serious and life-threatening emergency. So, Ugh. oh, I can't even imagine, like, facing that. I know. And, like, I, as a family member, that's just so much harder to wrap your mind right. around thinking of what their last seconds were like versus just thinking, That they thinking, had that moment oh, to panic versus, yeah. like, not knowing what yeah. happened. Just, just, it was so fast right. that they wouldn't have, yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people were finding comfort in that at first, that hopefully they just didn't, Right, no, it just disintegrated you know. and it was just over in a, in a yeah. second. But, but to know that so they literally worse. were mm. trying to see if they could survive this some in some way. Yeah. And the fact that the whole crew compartment was actually pretty much intact. So upsetting. Even after it hit the water, which was two minutes and 45 seconds after the explosion. It just tells you how fast of a speed the compartment was moving at. And, I mean, to hit the water, mm -hmm. I mean, it's like hitting solid ground pretty much. Mm -hmm. A NASA astronaut and physician named Joseph P. Kerwin wrote a report on the cause of death for the Challenger crew, and he wrote that the crew's cabin's impact with the ocean was so violent that they couldn't determine a conclusive cause of death. They couldn't tell what impact the shell's breakup had on the crew either. So obviously the entire nation really went into a state of mourning after watching this tragic disaster on TV. And so many children around the country were watching, so excited, to have this special day, you know, this exciting launch, a teacher's going into space, and all that excitement quickly turned into grief. And some kids even wrote letters to Krista's husband. We have a clip of that. 
Nowhere was the grief more personal than at schools, among the students and teachers, many who had wanted to be Krista McAuliffe. How many times have I told you about Krista McAuliffe and the teacher in space? I wanted to be the teacher in space, you know, and she beat me out. Yesterday, this seventh grade class at West Sylvan wrote letters to Krista McAuliffe. Today, they wrote them to her husband. One 12-year-old summed up the feelings of many. Sorrow plagued my body when I heard of the historical mishap with the space shuttle. I hope that in the future there will be more tries and discoveries with fewer problems. Your wife was a brave and courageous woman. My condolences to you and your family. Wow, well spoken for a kid. I know. So all of the crew members' remains were recovered, and they each received separate funerals and burials. Greg Jarvis's remains actually weren't recovered until April 17th, 1986, almost three months after the disaster. The space shuttle's program was suspended for almost three years after the Challenger disaster. The space shuttle Endeavor was built to replace the Challenger. The SRBs were completely redesigned and renamed SRMs, or Solid Rocket Motors. And pieces of wreckage were found in different spots all over the country. And Challenger debris has never been fully recovered. The remains of the Challenger that could be recovered were buried in a missile silo at Cape Canaveral. In 2015, some of the remains were removed to be put on display at the Kennedy Space Center along with remains of the Columbia. I read that even after 10 years since this happened, there were two huge pieces that actually washed up in the surf of uh, Cocoa Beach, mm-hmm. which is like 20 miles south of the Kennedy Space Station uh, or Space Center, sorry. And one of the pieces was more than six feet wide and 13 feet long. So just huge. Um, and NASA believes that that piece was actually originally connected um, and that they came from the shuttle's like left wing flap area. So just like a massive piece broke off and flew into the water and eventually wow. came up, you know, Amazing. to the surface and to shore. Surprising um, that it actually washed up. I know. You'd yeah, especially so, that big. Yeah. That's why I was like so shocked. Heavy. And there was like a total of, I think, around 5,000 pieces, um, all weighing somewhere around 250,000 pounds is what I had read. That's so wild. So after the disaster, big changes obviously needed to be made to NASA's culture. Before the disaster, there had been sort of a politics before engineering policy and a lot of herd mentality within the organization. As a result of the disaster, NASA's Office of Safety, Reliability, and Quality Assurance was created and NASA engineers were taught to question anything that seemed even a little off. But you think that would have just been that, that way from the beginning. It's so, ah, so frustrating. Nobody was criminally charged in connection with the Challenger disaster. Sadly, tragedy struck the space shuttle program again seven years later after the Challenger disaster. On the morning of February 1st, 2003, the space shuttle Columbia broke up upon re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere, killing all seven astronauts on board. We have considered doing an episode on this, so let us know if that's something that you would be interested in. It was discovered in 2011 that the risk of a catastrophic failure for the first nine shuttle launches was actually one in nine. So that number is wildly lower than the one in 100,000 number that NASA management gave before. In 2011, the space shuttle program ended. The space shuttle Atlantis completed the final mission STS-135 on July 21st, 2011. For more than 30 years, the Challenger disaster haunted Bob Eveling. I'm sure. 
must have just driven yeah. him absolutely nuts. He was racked with guilt for three decades over not being able to stop the shuttle from launching. But he was finally able to forgive himself after an NPR story about the disaster on its 30th anniversary. After the story was published, he received hundreds of messages from people all over the country calling him a hero for trying to stop the disaster. The guilt that tormented him finally dissipated, and Bob passed away peacefully on March 21, 2016. Richard Feynman passed away on February 15, 1988. Roger Beaujolais died on January 6, 2012. Barbara Morgan was determined to make it to space, and 12 years after the disaster, she was selected to join NASA's astronaut class of 1998. She trained for two years, and she was scheduled to fly on the shuttle Columbia in 2004, but the Columbia was destroyed during the breakup disaster of 2003. Barbara was actually aboard a training plane that was following the shuttle during its landing attempt. And finally, in 2007, she flew on STS-118 as a mission specialist. The Challenger disasters left a mark on the nation, and so did the seven brave souls who lost their lives that January day. Many schools have been renamed and memorials built for the seven fallen astronauts. There's also a memorial for the crew at Arlington National Cemetery. What makes the Challenger disaster so tragic was that it was an entirely preventable accident. And because of that, the world lost seven truly brilliant, talented, and courageous human beings. And their sacrifice will never be forgotten. Yeah, Reagan actually, after this happened, ended up postponing his annual message to the nation. And instead, he addressed the nation about this horrific accident. And this was the first time in history that a president had done this. Mm-hmm. And this speech that he gave was thought to be one of, you know, the best speeches of his entire presidency. Um, just really monumental. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd plan to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union. But the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. Nancy and I are pained to the core by the tragedy of the shuttle challenger. We know we share this pain with all of the people of our country. This is truly a national loss. 19 years ago, almost to the day, we lost three astronauts in a terrible accident on the ground. But we've never lost an astronaut in flight. We've never had a tragedy like this. And perhaps we've forgotten the courage it took for the crew of the shuttle. But they, the Challenger 7, were aware of the dangers, but overcame them and did their jobs brilliantly. We mourn seven heroes, Michael Smith, Dick Scobie, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair, Ellison Onizuka, Gregory Jarvis, and Krista McAuliffe. We mourn their loss as a nation together. The families of the seven, we cannot bear as you do the full impact of this tragedy. But we feel the loss and we're thinking about you so very much. Your loved ones were daring and brave, and they had that special grace, that special spirit that says, give me a challenge, and I'll meet it with joy. They had a hunger to explore the universe and discover its truths. They wished to serve, and they did. There's a coincidence today. On this day, 390 years ago, the great explorer Sir Francis Drake died aboard ship off the coast of Panama. In his lifetime, the great frontiers were the oceans, and a historian later said he lived by the sea, died on it, and was buried in it. Well, today, we can say of the Challenger crew, their dedication was, like Drake's, complete. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, 
nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Thank you. Mm, that was really well Yeah, spoken. powerful. I mean, just when you get into the astronaut program, you obviously know that there is you know, a level of danger to this, mm-hmm. you know, you're leaving, you know, solid ground. And just to have that courage and bravery and, you know, to set out on that mission, mm-hmm. full well knowing you might not return is just, uh, mm-hmm. it's truly a experience that many of us can never say we'll have. No. And it's something that many of us, I don't think would want or could, had I don't know how to put this. Yeah. Would feel like we're cut out to handle something like that. It's a ton of risk. Yeah. I could never do it. But to them, it's uh, the ultimate Mm -hmm. adventure, the ultimate challenge. Mm -hmm. And they're serving, like you said. They were wanted to serve and they did. I think the hardest thing about this is the fact that this this should have just never happened. Mm -hmm. And yeah, of course. NASA really, really fucked this one up. I think that's why it's so important to remember this story, not only remember these people and what they went through, but to remember NASA's responsibility here. Yeah. I mean, ultimately too, I think there's more personal responsibility within NASA Mm -hmm. than, you know, the fact that there was no criminal charges, which again, this is the government investigating the government and that usually never happens anyway. I've seen that before. Exactly. So it doesn't, surprise me that mm-hmm. you know nobody within nasa was criminally no. charged i'd be surprised if they were because, but you just think that there's such gross negligence here mm-hmm. from the management at nasa mm-hmm. to go through with this launch knowing that the weather was going to be there was literally icicles on the launch pad yeah knowing from previous launches at the o-rings not only the primary but the secondary o-ring mm-hmm. was not going to cut it mm-hmm and that the chance of a catastrophic failure was imminent, really. Yeah. And to just, you know, they didn't want to continue pushing things back because their budget would, you know, have to increase. Which, again, it's like, I just don't understand, like, why that was a reason. You know, why Mm -hmm. your budget increasing, you know, needing more funding would come yeah. over the lives of you know it just it mm-hmm. really makes you think that the government's perspective is that human you know mm-hmm. the ones that work for it are expendable oh totally and we've seen this time and time again over history mm-hmm. through events like this that and i mean we could get into the columbia in the future because there's a lot of yeah you know, a lot of that there I'd too like it's like that. it's just mm-hmm. you know that's why i always nasa stands for never you know never a straight answer because they never give a straight you know they never give a straight they constantly tried to hide and cover up and Mm -hmm. protect their image yeah there's a lot of examples of that and it's no it's no wonder that it's really fallen from the public eye Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like it just does you know they they were really trying hard to be this beacon of you know, adventure and space exploration. And, you know, I think they thought that at the time NASA was on the up and up. I mean, 
mm-hmm. and and it's it's started to come back a little bit, especially with um, mm-hmm. you know, some of the programs they've announced, you know, Mars and everything yeah. being on the horizon, and actually in 2024 there's the Artemis mission. They're going right. to put a man and woman on the moon again, mm-hmm. and I think they're hoping it's going to sort of reignite this passion for it, which I think people are passionate about space. Let's don't get me wrong. I think and that and that's mm-hmm. one thing that you know programs like Jeff Bezos's uh, Origin, Blue Origin, and Elon Musk SpaceX, you know, privatized space exploration and research is kind of reignited that. And now NASA's playing catch up, you know, trying to figure out how they're going to make their comeback and get people to get behind them because ultimately they do need the public's right. interest in order for them to get the funding they need in order to to go back into space. But I think sadly society has changed so much and I don't know if it would ever be anywhere near the excitement that they originally had, especially because if there was a launch or some type of event, most people would see it while they're scrolling on their phones for a few seconds, like catch it later. I don't, I don't know if it'll ever be to the, the countrywide excitement that it was at one point, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, I, I think I mean, going into orbit is like an everyday thing now. It's not that right. it's not that cool to have something go up in orbit or have. Hu- I mean, humans are going up to the space that. station. Uh, I don't know. I disagree. I think that if someone was going to Mars, people well, would that, be fucking tuning if in. If it was for- something that we've never done, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Right, we've never done. We don't have- or going back to the moon. I think would be a big deal because it's been. Do you? Dec- yeah, I do actually. I think that people. Would I think it. people would be interested. Yeah, for sure. I think. Be- I just don't think to the scale. Of the the when everything was first starting and we were first doing those initial missions. Well, yeah, and, I mean, I don't it's know not if it would first. be right. What gets people excited is first, first. That's what I'm saying. But at the same time, I think it will be interesting to see what that looks like and how that unfolds and how will our experience of mm-hmm. witnessing humans walk on the moon again rival that of the past? You know, with technology the where where it's at now, streaming and internet. You know via satellite i'm curious to see how much different the experience will be for us to watch somebody on the moon like nasa will live stream it on youtube most likely and it'll be interesting it'll be yeah exactly will they will they live stream it right it'll be interesting to see though how it compares to our previous visits to the moon and that footage and stuff i'm very interested in what that's going to look like but again i I I guess i'm being negative i just think i don't know i think our society has changed a lot well, yeah, I mean, we put, I mean, we're more interested in Tom Brady's breakup from his wife than, you know, what's going on in outer space for most of us. Like you know, most of us person. are, the average person's more sucked into what the Kardashians are up to versus, you know, what's going on in the astral bodies above us. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just where our culture has gone, but hopefully mm-hmm. we can re, you know, get our, hopefully. get the youngins, That'd be great. you know, our children into science you know that's why stem mm-hmm. is so important you know getting children mm-hmm. into that because that is super important and i re- i really enjoyed that growing up and i would want to you know give our daughter the same experience and excitement oh, yeah. about science sure. and space and all of that so yeah it's it's a super interesting topic but yeah it, i i've always am like there's just been this huge gap in mm-hmm. space exploration yeah when it comes to humans going to space mm-hmm. and we've had these tragedies and it seems like a lot of you know a lot of companies do they want to take the risk and 
you know, having something like that happen again, and mm-hmm. therefore a lot of it's unmanned. And so it'll be it'll be really interesting to see if in the Artemis mission in 2024, if that will actually happen, if NASA will actually yeah. put humans back on the moon. But that would be exciting. That would be exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's been a long time since we. Will the whole country like stop and everyone's watching the TV? That's what I'm saying. I don't know if that's... Well, I mean, everybody wasn't watching this either. Yeah. There was well, a, there a, was a good amount. Were. There was a good amount, but or, it wasn't like the whole nation. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was still like a percentage of people, like 25%. Or Actually, I read I something that it was kind of... Um, wasn't like, like people think that a lot more people were watching it than they really were. In fact, a lot of people caught it afterwards, like as far oh, as watching really? it live. Yeah, it actually wasn't as many people as everyone thinks it was. That's what I read. Mm. Yeah, it was a lot of students because, right, because of, of the, the space the the, yeah the teacher yeah. in space program it's like part of it but i don't think people were like taking the day off glued to yeah. their tvs by any means i mean they were yeah. glued to the news that night when, oh yeah when they were reporting mm-hmm. on oh this, but well once this happened yeah yeah anyway we want to hear your thoughts on all of this as always and let us know if you would like to see more content like this we definitely would like to look at columbia as well or just other, I mean, there's other mm-hmm. sort of disasters like this in history that are. Mm-hmm. I think really important to yeah, talk about and remember. Definitely. Especially a lot of them have occurred before any of us, at least in this room, have been born. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just interesting that we don't, you know, through our schooling. I mean, some of us learned about some of these things, but some of us probably never even heard of some of this stuff. Yeah, and probably not to the extent that we just right. discussed yeah, exactly. it, but. But yeah, that's where we're going to wrap up today's episode there. Make sure you're subscribed to us on YouTube. It's a great place to watch the show. It's Spotify mm-hmm. as well. We have the video version there. Yeah, that's really nice. So make sure you're following and subscribe to us there. But we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, keep on taking your mind a mile higher. We'll see you next time.